everyone with an interest in MASH, or more broadly, metabolic-associated steatonic liver disease, surfs up. Doesn't that roll off the tongue? Season 4, Episode 48 of Surfing the MASH Tsunami, our interviews with some of our best friends about what they're looking forward to at the Liver Meeting 2023, starts now. Today on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. I think there is still a big unmet need to really understand some of the biomarkers, particularly the newer biomarkers. And I do have two presentations that are going to explore collagens and collagen breakdown products, collagen biomarkers in relation to liver histology. As we prepare for the Liver Meeting 2023, Surfing the Nash Tsunami is interviewing some of our guest opinion leaders on what they find most exciting about the upcoming agenda. Today, Roger Green speaks with Tsunami co-host Professor Jarn Schottenberg about presentations he will give in Boston and others he anticipates eagerly. This is Roger Green, host of the podcast, soon to be officially rebranded Surfing the Mashed Tsunami. This week, our plan was to record an episode on the liver risk score, but that fell apart at the last minute due to some conflicts that only emerged on Monday. We were unable to record this week. We hope to have that interview for you at a later point in time. So next on the release schedule, and pushed up a few days, was the preview run-up to the Liver Meeting 2023 from AASLD, which takes place in Boston starting on November 9. The original plan was to record several interviews that we would release on the week that starts on October 30th, but we are stepping that up a little bit. We will do one or two of them the end of this week, and two, three, or more over the course of next week. Each will be an individual interview with one of our favorite guests, discussing what that person anticipates most eagerly about TLM 2023. Our first interview is with a very familiar voice, my friend and co-host, Jorn Schottenberg. Jorn, who has been traveling all fall almost as much as an astronaut, was able to spend half an hour Thursday afternoon discussing two of the presentations he will give at TLM, and we chatted about some other points of interest and what they might mean for liver disease and how we think about treating it and diagnosing it. I hope you enjoy. So as I said in the introduction, as the schedules this fall become more and more challenging, this interview format as compared to the episode format is getting a bit more of a workout than we originally anticipated. Uh, the one chance that you and I have to catch up uh, this week, for example, is right now as I sit here at 2.30 on Thursday afternoon in the East, 8.30 in, uh, in Mainz. Uh, Joran, thank you for staying awake. I know you've had a long day. How are you? Other than tired. Thank you. Well, it's not particularly late, 8.30 p.m., but it was a busy day. A lot of things going on. And uh, on the other hand, I'm energized about the fall meetings, ASLD around the corner. Uh, that's going to be very exciting. So why don't we just consistent with the format of what we're doing here? Let's do a couple of things. First of all, uh, I'd like you to talk about one or two things that you're presenting at the meeting that you're excited about. And then after that, we'll talk about other sessions you find of interest. And then I'll share one or two that I'm interested in. That'll be our, that'll be our conversation, which we'll probably post on Friday or Saturday. Why don't you just jump right in? One of the exciting things is that the Nalan IT Consortium, which is a large clinical database built on patient data derived from mostly phase two clinical trials, screening baseline data uh, sets will present more data. And we've had uh, a number of abstracts at EASL, and there's going to be a bunch of abstracts again being presented at this meeting. Stephen Harrison, Maz Nureddin, and Nagim Al-Khuri will present some. I did an analysis in that NAIL NIT consortium looking at the metabolic control of patients. Uh, so this is abstract 2221. And um, one of the thoughts I always had is that a lot of the patients I'm seeing in clinics and trying to enroll them in clinical trials, they have suboptimal metabolic control. And then 
then you have to debate whether this is the right time for the patient to be enrolled in the clinical trial or whether you should further optimize the metabolic control. You know, they're not out of scope. So typically A1C below 9.5 is allowed in clinical trials. Uh, most patients are probably uh, much better than that. But one of the hypotheses we had was that the worsening metabolic control is also related to underlying liver disease. So for the endocrinologist, it's difficult to have an optimized metabolic control. So based on that observations, we went into that NAIL-NIT consortium database, which covers more than 6,000 patients from a number of different phase two trials. Out of 605,058 uh, patients where we had different fibrosis stages, we then looked at the spread of, for example, A1C or lipids stratified according to baseline biopsy. And something you see is that, as a matter of fact, with increasing fibrosis stages, there is an increase, for example, in the A1C. And we're showing mean values here in that uh, poster with the F4 population. And that's 102 patients in that in that big cohort having an A1C that's significantly higher compared to the earlier disease stages. In particular, F1, you kind of see a gradual, if you'd like, dose-dependent increase that plateaus in advanced disease cases, F3, F4. So the question, why is that? The extent of liver disease, which is driven by disease activity and mounts into fibrosis over time, has a story to tell that's linked to the metabolic control. I mean, the one pathway to optimization of these patients we have today is to improve metabolic control using all available treatment options for our patients with type 2 diabetes, for example. Um, but on the other hand, the underlying liver disease makes it more difficult uh, to optimally control these patients. And that, again, opens up the avenue for liver-targeted therapies. And I, and I think we'll, we'll see a lot of data on, um, on that uh, emerging at the liver meeting. And um, I think this is something this baseline screening data shows that the more advanced your liver fibrosis stage you are, the less likely you're well metabolically controlled. Is this an excellent case of proving something we already believed is the case, or is there a surprise anywhere in here? Is this a big surprise? I, I think it recapitulates something I've been observing in clinic and I wasn't able to explore in large data sets. Again, the NIL uh, NIT consortium here combines seven ongoing non-serotic phase two trials and as such constitutes a, a special patient uh, database, um, namely patients that were thought eligible and underwent baseline uh, biopsy in a clinical trial cohort. It's a certain selection, but it confirms I think my clinical suspicion that the, the severity of liver disease also has impact on the metabolic control. Something actually we see is that the BMI, which is consistently high, decreases towards the F4 stages. And also uh, waist and hip circumference tend to uh, go down in the um, cirrhotic populations, again, confirming those patients do worse. And it's something we see in the clinical trial cohorts too. Yeah, so I, that makes, all, all that makes good sense. And obviously the uh, issues around BMI and cirrhosis and, and in fact, liver fat and fluorosis, and, and as a result, why some of those issues become confounding make complete sense. For those of you who can't see, and nobody can see, Jorn is getting a visit while we're talking from a, uh, a mischievous but uh, very precious visitor. It's, it's bedtime in Germany. Yeah, someone who should be going to bed right now. But coming back to your comment, this is not rocket science, but I think the whole scientific breakthrough here is that we're actually able to combine seven different phase two trials from different sponsors to do a baseline analysis. Now, if you move this ahead and we have responder data and we're able to deepen that uh, consortium, this will be a unique data set um, allowing us to assess for baseline predictors of response or um, also on treatment uh, biomarker responders uh, across a number of different MOAs. So I'm very excited about the cohort overall. And uh, I mean, the number of abstracts that are coming out of the cohort now, just looking at the baseline data uh, is something uh, that's special. And I think um, it'll be it'll be of interest uh, to the field. So um, what I'm hearing you saying, let me see if I get this right, is there are two things going on here. Number one is this isn't groundbreaking, but it is 
confirmatory of one of those things that we might intuitively believe but couldn't prove. And second, it demonstrates the value of the um, nail-on IT and multiple manufacturer approach to gathering and aggregating data. This is one of the things, things from Liverpool and Placebo Project will be another example of the same kind of thing where you bring in data from a lot of different manufacturers and use that to create a, to, to prove something that one manufacturer or one researcher would be unlikely to develop a robust enough data source to prove. Am I, am I getting both those points right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And uh, it has been an effort to convince individual sponsors to allow for joint baseline analyses because the benefit to the individual sponsor is not great. It really takes the academic efforts uh, and us as investigators to push for that and convince the sponsors to allow us to do that data analysis and, um, and just the wealth of data, I think, is a value here that comes from Nail IT. So ringing in my ears is a comment that you made, I think, about Paris Nash, maybe, or the SLT Summit. I don't remember which one, which is that the importance of the basic science is we don't know what we don't. This is your phrase. It's mine. There's a fourth quadrant problem. We don't know what we don't know. And the basic science converts us from what we don't know we don't know to what we know we don't know. And then you can start to develop drugs and diagnostics and all those other things to get after it. But the size and richness of data sets are exactly what will make it possible to do that kind of a transition. So we learn more about very basic things by being able to aggregate more data and look for better patterns. And that's really exciting, if I'm reading you right. I, I think you are. And again, there's more presentations from that consortium, um, an oral, and I believe six or seven posters. So Nail and IT is something, uh, if you go through the program book and search for that, that will be a unique data set. Continuing the trend that started at uh, Easel, where the Nail and IT came into, came into prime time, really, for the first time in terms of major oral presentations. That's very exciting. Is there another presentation you're giving that you'd like to share a little bit of uh, information about? Yeah, let me shift gears a little bit and move away from that very practical clinical trial cohort design to something more exploratory, because I think there is still a big unmet need to really understand some of the biomarkers, particularly the newer biomarkers and changes of biomarkers in, in patients. And I do have two uh, presentations that are going to explore collagens and collagen breakdown products, collagen biomarkers in relation to liver histology to better understand their pathophysiological role and maybe even refine the way we look at liver fibrosis in the future. So one abstract is 2105. 2105 is an abstract where we do an analysis in a monocentric cord in my patients in collaboration with both histoindex and Nordic Bioscience and took um, liver biopsies from 132 patients across all fibrosis stages and comorbidities, 10% F4, 3% F0. A lot of patients were F1, F2, and F3, and actually did the regular histoindex analysis. Uh, so they typically look at Q fibrosis to assess the fibrosis stage and correlated that with pro-C3 levels in these patients. So the question is, is there a correlation pro-C3 being a biomarker of active fibrogenesis and Q fibrosis? as being a measure of histologically defined liver fibrosis. And is there a correlation? And yes, there was a correlation, but overall the fibrosis um, stage assessed by Q-fibrosis wasn't very strong. So then we advanced that a little bit and the advantage of the histoindex technology and the uh, second harmonic imaging generation is that you can actually move away from the typical NASH-CRN staging categories of F0 till F4 and look a little bit more at the continuous scale or the 
morphologic features of collagen. Now, we don't know what that means at this time, but if you talk to the pathologist, they always tell me, you know, I can see a little bit of collagen there, a little bit of collagen there, but then I got to subsidize that into the NASH CRN categories. And these are um, designed to mainly stress the importance of fibrosis in the periportal region over other fibrosis regions. So with a histoindex quantification, we're able to actually see a little bit more granular portal fibrosis, the perisinusoidal fibrosis on top of the periportal fibrosis. And here, the PRO-C3 actually correlated better with a portal tract fibrosis compared to the traditional fibrosis stainings, the Q-fibrosis score, the NASH-CRN score. And um, now, what does that tell us? This is a monocentric study, um, intermediate size data set, but it underlines the concept that not all fibrosis is equal in the liver and certain patterns seem to correlate better with some of the collagen markers we're looking at. And clearly the NASH CRN fibrosis stages, which we are using for prognosis and also expedited or conditional approval of drugs, that's not necessarily the type of fibrosis staging where those collagen biomarkers we've been developed are correlating best with, right? So pure exploratory data science here in the monocentric cohort showing that the type and patterns on spatial distribution of collagen does have a correlation with some of the fibrosis markers we're exploring today. So let's move forward from there a little bit. Do we have hypotheses? Forget whether we have proof yet, but do we have hypotheses about which regions of fibrosis are most likely to be clinically relevant and whether those are the ones that are likely to be responsive to certain kinds of pharmacotherapy? It seems to me the benefit is figure out what regions have, which, for example, if, if portal hypertension becomes a target, then where does fibrosis have the greatest impact on portal hypertension? And are there some tests that are better than others at sorting out what's going on in that particular region? Uh, just to give you one example that comes to mind, is, will it work that way? Or um, we don't know yet. It, it, it's truly a translational research question we're asking here because uh, we're not moving away from the NASH CRN to classify treatment response and uh, conditional approval. But if we think about moving forward and, and qualifying non-invasive biomarkers as an outcome for conditional approval, they will have to be linked to outcome predicting liver events or overall survival, for example. And yes, there are different fibrosis patterns. Some seem to be more pronounced in different clinical um, subtypes. I can't say that um, there is a pattern that the pathologist will tell you, for example, this is the underlying liver disease. So the chicken wire fibrosis we're typically seeing in alcohol is a totally different fibrosis pattern than we're seeing the one in NASH. But still, the pathologist has a hard time, even if he sees chicken wire fibrosis, to call this out as a ASH versus NASH case. And so bottom line, I don't think we're at the point to move away from the NASH CRN staging system to predict outcomes. But clearly in the realm of biomarker development and understanding the the pathophysiology of the biomarker better, it is important to link that to the histological changes. And here, it seems very logical to me that some of the pathomechanisms that are activated in NASH and produce, for example, fibrosis deposition in the portal tracts are particularly picked up by pro-collagen 3, as we've shown here. I mean, there's a lot of uh, different additional analyses that um, histoindex analysis is able to do, looking at the strength of the septa or the length of the scepter on top of the um, spatial distribution. We didn't really find an, a strong correlation uh, for PRO-C3 with those. Uh, it was the uh, the deposition of fibrosis in the in the portal tract, which was um, uh, had the best correlation. And, and which is, will probably turn out over time to have some compelling value. So, okay, that's a good thing to know. Yeah, I can't speak on the prediction of outcomes, which is the interest, because this is a cross-sectional study. But it, I think it's hypothesis generating, and it speaks to the limitations of the NASH-CRN if we try to link a biomarker 
to a histological fibrosis stage. So to speculate, in the process of moving towards increased use of biomarkers in the process of drug approval, if this suggests that NASH CRN is of limited value, but it's what we're using right now in conditional approval, how do you foresee that gets absorbed into the system to the degree that you're comfortable foreseeing? One of the points is that if you use ProC3 as a cross-sectional or diagnostic biomarker, its absolute value is not as good as, or it doesn't you know, significantly improve the field here. I think one of the aspects that ProC3 has always looked at is an active fibrogenesis biomarker. So the patients are actually fibrosing, and this is a property in a patient we can't capture in a single snapshot biopsy. So that is important. And ProC3 has been refined, for example, in the ADAPT score to better classify the fibrosis stages as a diagnostic biomarker. So some value here, but um, combining biomarkers that capture fibrogenesis in addition with fibrolysis, this could also be a different approach. And I know uh, some of the studies are looking at that concept to separate patients that are resolving fibrosis over those that are building up fibrosis. Interesting. As we start using the NITs to paint the picture as compared to merely give us numbers, it seems to me the way you're talking about is a picture of far greater clarity and more dimensionality, which is important. Well, or let's say more dynamic, right? Testing and retesting during the disease course where um, biopsy is really just a snapshot of a disease activity and disease stage at one certain point. We can't repeat the test really outside of clinical trials. And with those biomarkers, we just have a much greater plasticity of what's happening in the patients over time. And linking that to outcome will be the way forward to clear one of those NITs for conditional drug approval. And there's a number of initiatives doing that. In the meantime, we have to understand how that biomarker relates to the pathophysiology of the disease driver. And I think here, the type of analyses we've been doing in this monocentric cohort study as a diagnostic biomarker does add uh, some value. That's great. So those are a couple of things that you're presenting that you think are of interest. Are there other papers that you're not presenting that you're particularly intrigued to see the results of or the implications of? Let me give you a heads up, uh, even if it's not in the NASH field. So the um, GenFit program on allofibrinor uh, was uh, discontinued in NASH. However, the phase three results from uh, PBC will be presented as a late breaker at the liver meeting. And as a pathologist, that's very exciting because really second line therapy in PBC. And again, we're not discussing this in very intensively here, but this is a patient population that has a high unmet need. And again, uh, in the concept um, is an antifibrotic drug in a chronic progressive cholestatic liver disease with a high disease burden. And I'm very excited to have that late breaker uh, presentation being presented. Look, I think that is exciting. I agree with you. And uh, PPARS clearly will have a role to play in PBC. NASH as well, I would think. I mean, lenofibrinor is still alive and well and heading through phase three, right? And Celadelpar, I assume, should be presenting phase three results. If not here, then relatively, I know they've been putting our press releases on it, so I assume they'll be sharing something. Yes. So the PPARS are not going away. That, that That's very exciting. So let me change gears and uh, talk about the different area, um, moving to the cirrhotic NASH patients. I think there's going to be um, biomarker data presented, something we contributed to in a multi-center analysis, looking at some new NITs, in particular spleen stiffness, using a special design device for that spleen stiffness. So transient elastography with an M-probe using a 100 hertz signal. And the way you can use it is both to risk stratify patients for uh, the presence of clinical significant portal hypertension and at-risk varices and potentially in the future also as a treatment uh, response biomarkers. Uh, and we hope in the future to have some correlations with HVPG to be shown. So even in the field of compensated and decompensated cirrhosis, there are some biomarkers here. Imaging biomarkers seem to be a little bit better suited at this time compared to, for example, L for liquid biomarkers. But I think that is still an unresolved questions and we're going to be presenting some of that data on spleen stiffness using uh, 100 hertz uh, exams 
in a, in a large um, multi-center cohort. Where will the results of that data lead us? I mean, cirrhosis is clearly important for a variety of reasons. It's where people are the sickest. It's where there's the greatest economic return and where the most important need to understand exactly where a patient is at because once you get the decompensated disease, you've changed everything. So how do you envision the results of this paper being used? There's a number of drug development programs looking in that patient population. One is, of course, outcome studies in compensated cirrhosis patients with MOAs that have been studied in the F2, F3 population. So we're going to see a lot of um, patient information in that cohort. But then there are some MOAs that are currently um, explored to actually target portal hypertension or clinical significant portal hypertension, even independent of the disease driver or the etiology, because the portal pressure gradient is really the driver of decompensation, bleeding, ascites, and, and also HE. And by decreasing that vascular resistance in the liver using different MOAs, this could really make a big impact on patient outcomes. Again, that's the patient population at biggest need or at largest need. And if we have the NITs in parallel to move away from HVPG, which is from the operational side, even much more difficult compared to liver biopsy, uh, for example, that will be a big step forward. And here, the imaging biomarkers, even liver stiffness, but the spleen stiffness more specifically, once we refined um, cutoffs and uh, validated it in larger cohort, could help us to manage those patients, identify the ones at risk and the ones we should include in clinical trials. And that will also expedite the drug development in that arena. Well, that, that would be huge because obviously that's an arena that needs drug development. But that's, that's a set of patients that need help as quickly and dramatically, if not more so than anybody else in the entire um, you know, uh, liver disease uh, or, or steatotic liver disease category. So that, that that would be fantastic. Anything else you want to share? You've been, I know I know it's getting late for you. Well, or, or I'm too tired. I have to say, I haven't made up my full program yet, so I'll have to look at the plenaries and the main oral sessions. And That's fine. Let me let me tie a bow on that one, which is that uh, this series of one-on-one -on -one interviews will include five or six, four, five, six people who are going to be at the meeting. And then we're recording on November 6th a uh, pre-episode meeting that Jorn is hoping he'll be able to make. He's flying back from where, Japan that day? Is it Kobe, I think you said? So if, in fact, he can get the, the, the timing on the flight from Kobe so that he's at least as awake as he is tonight, then he'll be joining us for that full episode, which is, as you know, our first full episode in a little while. And then he'll obviously be back with us for the follow-ups to the meeting in Boston the following week, although he's flying on Sunday, so he'll probably be taking those from back in Germany. Yeah, I'll be arriving early Monday morning. We'll see how we'll hold up. There is um, the Japanese DDW, and I'm going to be presenting some data uh, there, uh, which is an exciting trip, and that's why I, I choose to do it. Uh, it's a little challenging because it's also November, and I'll see how I'll hold up to then make it to Boston a few days later the same week. But anyways, there are times in life where you can do that. And I, for me this year, uh, this is still possible. It's great that you're young. You get a little older, it gets a little harder maybe. But uh, although although we just lost our president go back and forth to Israel for 36 hours last week. So, uh, and he's 80 years old. So we, we've all got our work ahead of us. But thank you for making the time this evening. And uh, I missed you. It turns out, uh, audience, that Jorn and I were both speakers at a cor someone's corporate event last week on successive days. And neither one of us knew the other one was speaking until I was the second one. And they said, well, you know, we spoke yesterday with you and I said, oh, how nice. But have a great trip to Japan. It's great getting to see you. And we will see you again, hopefully on the 6th. And if not, uh, you and I'll catch up in Boston and the audience will get to hear us together on the wrap up episodes. Uh, they will. Looking forward to that, Roger. And thank you. Thank you, my friend. Hope you enjoyed that interview. We will not have a business section this week. I will be back probably tomorrow with the next of our 2023 liver meeting leading interviews. Until then, stay safe, surf on. We'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website.